today on Against the Grain. They were queer and they were communists. Lorraine Hansberry and Harry Hay were radicals at a time when the Communist Party excluded gays and lesbians. I'm CS. Bettina Aptaker discusses her book, Communists in Closets, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, took Broadway by storm in 1959, and it still wows audiences today. Harry Hay taught about music and class consciousness, and he helped found the Mattachine Society. Hay and Hansberry were both queer, they were both radical thinkers, and they were each, for a time, members of the Communist Party in the U.S. It wasn't easy. For most of the 20th century, the party banned LGBT people from membership. So how did Lorraine Hansberry and Harry Hay navigate the many constraints they faced? How did they analyze the situation of gays and lesbians? And how was that linked to their understanding of radical theory and practice? Hay and Hansberry are two of the figures profiled in Bettina Aptaker's new book, Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s. Bettina Aptaker is Distinguished Professor Emerita of Feminist Studies at UC Santa Cruz. Her other books include Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel, and The Morning Breaks, The Trial of Angela Davis. When Bettina and I connected recently, she began with this background on the early years of the Communist Party. When the Communist Party was founded, in, and really uh, 1919, 1920, its membership grew very rapidly into uh, what I've, I've read, something in 30,000, 40,000 people, because there was a lot of uh, very sympathetic immigrant population as well as people in, in the country who had not recently immigrated, but uh, who were organizing in unions and opposition to World War I had been a, a big factor. And then there were the Palmer raids in the 1920s, which pretty much smashed the whole left, including the Communist Party, uh, the very virulent anti-communist campaigns. And then that subsided. And then in the 1930s, <clears throat> the Communist Party uh, had a real resurgence, and especially in building the Popular Front against fascism, as it erupted, <clears throat> of course, in uh, Spain and in Germany and uh, in other parts of, of Europe. As a result of that, by the, by the late 30s and 40s, the Communist Party had an estimated membership of 100,000, which was a very significant, it was the largest left organization like that, and very significant, I think, in terms of organizing, especially anti-racist organizing in the South and union organizing in the Midwest, like the steel workers, the auto workers, and so on. In addition, the party had a cultural journal that was called New Masses, and it had a circulation in the tens of thousands and had very profound influence on the cultural left, way beyond the purview of the Communist Party itself. And many of the main writers that we see now in the literary canon wrote for the New Masses, and so that's another way in which it was a very significant political force. And then by the start of the Cold War, <clears throat> the late 1940s, and then of course into the 50s, the Communist Party was decimated again by various trials that were held in the Smith Act trials and the uh, FBI repression, the House on American Activities Committee, the McCarthy Committee, and so forth. And then quite smashed after the 20th Congress of the Soviet Union and the revelations from Khrushchev about the 
atrocities committed by Stalin. That's a, a sort of short little overview of that history. And when did the Communist Party first ban LGBT people from its membership, and for what reason? The Communist Party banned uh, LGBT people. It didn't call them LGBT. That, that wasn't the term that was used at that time. In its constitution, it forbid membership of what it called degenerates. And everybody understood that degenerates was a code word for homosexual. It also banned um, what they called prostitutes, strike breakers, uh, police agents, and so on. So we were lumped together with a, a variety of um, people. And the ban was put in place in the first instance in 1938, following the lead of the Soviet party and other parties in Western Europe that banned gays and lesbians from membership that was really a, a Stalinist move because I, I just want to emphasize that at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, there was a huge upswing in uh, various personal freedoms right at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, there was no longer a ban on homosexuality. There was a, a great deal of, of license around sexuality and free form and so forth. And when Stalin came in, uh, he put a clamp on that and that's part of what led to the ban. And then the, the US party just followed the lead. Later on in the 1950s, when the ban continued, because this ban goes on for 60 years, uh, the rationale changes more toward the idea that uh, gays and lesbians, if they were in the Communist Party, could be blackmailed by the FBI and forced to become informants and therefore they were a security risk to the Communist Party. And then in addition to that, they talked uh, in various resolutions about the degeneracy. So sometimes the resolutions that were passed in various party meetings uh, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, unbelievable into the 80s, uh, mirrored the worst bigotry that you would find in the right wing press. And they also emphasized what they called the um, sanctity of the working class family and that needed to be male and female and, you know, heterosexual. The ban on gay men and lesbians joining the Communist Party did not mean that gays and lesbians did not join the party and become active in the party. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. I, I didn't know how many. I mean, I knew I was a closeted lesbian in the Communist Party, and I joined it in 1962, and I left it in 1981, because by 1981, I was out as a lesbian. So the clue here is, is that as long as you did not declare your sexuality and remained closeted within the Communist Party, there were many gays and lesbians uh, in the party. And that's what my book is basically about, is the biographies of some of these really extraordinary people who joined the party, many of them during the Popular Front, and uh, made incredible contributions to all kinds of social justice movements and the gay liberation movement, ultimately. Yeah, talk more about the, the project of the book. You want to bring these stories to light. I know you want to highlight the the corrosive impact, that secrecy, that the fact that one had to keep one's sexuality secret from others, from the party, the corrosive impact that had uh, on people. You feel like this kind of history, uh, this kind of these kinds of stories have not been told. The the story of of queer communists and their impact and influence and their predicament hasn't really been uh, disseminated. I think that's correct. Um... There's considerable work that's been done on Harry Hay, who uh, founded the Mattachine Society in 1951, which was the first gay rights organization in the United States. And much of the work is, is very good. But as in most cases, the biographers were reluctant to talk too much about Harry's connection to the Communist Party or how that might have influenced the way he founded the Mattachine Society 
or the kind of um, theoretical work he was doing uh, and political work he was doing in relationship to gay and lesbian oppression. Another example is Lorraine Hansberry, about whom a great deal has been written, some wonderful biographies, including by um, Imani Perry, who wrote the book called Looking for Lorraine. And there's other work, and there was a PBS special uh, about her as well. And here again, the lesbian is acknowledged, the fact that she was a lesbian is acknowledged, <clears throat> and the fact that she was a communist is acknowledged. But in most of this work, there's a tendency to mute the significance of that. So again, in my chapter, I situate her very much within the Communist Party and very much affirm and talk about her lesbian identity. Uh, these are two examples of people that have been written about. Uh, many of the other people I wrote about, I, I think are basically not particularly known and would not have been understood if, if they were known, for example, a composer named Mark Blitzstein, some musicians, some people in the operatic world might know about his work, but they wouldn't have necessarily known that he was either gay or a communist. Uh, they might have known he was gay, but they certainly didn't know he was a communist. <laughs> so that's what I was trying to do, was to uh, unearth these stories and then talk about the contradictions that people faced in being... Uh, so underground within an organization that was already underground, if you understand what I mean. I mean, it, it, it was sort of semi-legal for much of the time. It made for some pretty crazy situations. Um, and I'll just tell one little brief story and then I'll stop. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry was editor of the Labor Youth League, which was the young, basically the Young Communist League's journal that was called New Challenge. And this was in the, the mid-50s, okay? And at the same time, um, a woman named Betty Millard, who plays a big role in my book, who was also a, a lesbian and a communist, was editor of something called Latin America Today, which was also a communist publication. And at the same time, Grace Hutchins and Anna Rochester, who were two leading members of the Communist Party, and also a couple that nobody acknowledged as a couple, were um, working for the Labor Research Associates. And all of them were working in an office building at 799 Broadway. And I know they had to have known each other because they had to have known, I mean, they were all in the Communist Party. But it occurred to me that they might not have known that each other was queer because everybody was so closeted about that. And that's what I was thinking about. It's, it's nuts. It's crazy. So I could imagine them cruising into each other's offices and talking for a little bit and whatever, and never mentioning this essential fact about themselves and being so hidden about it. And, and I think that's the kind of craziness that the ban created for people who were in the party and who were also queer. Bettina Aptaker joins us on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. She is Distinguished Professor Emerita of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We are talking about her new book. It's called Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain. Well, we agreed to talk in some depth about Harry Hay, and Lorraine Hansberry. You have chapters, detailed chapters about each of these folks and, and many others, as you mentioned. Um, Harry Hay was born in 1912, lived till 2002. What initially got Harry Hay into Marxism, into the study of Marx's writing? I spent a great deal of time in Hay's um, archive, which is at the San Francisco Public Library, uh, he has papers elsewhere, but that's the main collection. And I also listened to his oral history. When he was still, uh, say, a teenager, a, a young boy, really, he was like about 12 or 13, his father decided that he should work in the summers in the fields. They, they grew up, he grew up in uh, Southern California in Los Angeles. And his, his dad decided that it would be really good for him to work uh, in the fields, and uh, he learned how to um, work with hay, you know, uh, preparing hay for the 
for the animals. And you had to, uh, you know, lift up bales of hay and, and, and all of this. And he learned that skill. Well, while he was doing it, there were other workers who were there, including from the IWW, that's the Industrial Workers of the World, who were also working. And so they would give him, he said, dog-eared, oily pamphlets of Marxist material and have him read it. And then they would quiz him about it in the morning. Uh, so he was supposed to read all night, you know, whatever, and then they would they would talk with him during the day. He said that was his first real introduction to Marxist ideas. In the early 1930s, when he was uh, quite already uh, knew himself to be a homosexual, he had an affair with the actor Will Gear, who some people will remember was, it was a pretty well-known actor even into the 70s and 80s and was on television and, and, and so on. But he was a very uh, well-known actor in the 30s. And he was in the Communist Party, and he was gay. He wasn't out-out, but he was known. And the other part of this is this is before the ban in 38, okay? And they became lovers, and Will introduced Harry both to radical theater, which he was involved in, especially with the farm workers when they were trying to organize farm workers in the Central Valley. And he introduced him to Marxism and he even took him to a couple of Communist Party meetings. This was important to Harry and he, he read the material, but he, he uh, didn't like the Communist Party meetings, but he loved the theater and he loved doing radical theater with Will. And I understand Harry Hay and Will Gear, they participated in the 1934 San Francisco general strike. What did that experience prompt or inspire Hay to do or to investigate? The 1934 general strike in San Francisco, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, was one of the most important strikes that really defined that part of the 20th century and really influenced politics in the San Francisco Bay Area for decades afterwards. And it was a strike that ultimately shut down the shipping on the entire West Coast, all the way up to Washington and all the way down to San Diego. It had a very big impact on Harry and Will. They were there. They participated in the strike. And the strike strikers were brutalized. The police attacked them repeatedly claimed they were all communists and, and um, tried to break the strike. Two workers were killed, and Harry and Will were at a remarkable, I think unforgettable, funeral. Uh, tens of thousands of people who came out for the funeral of these two men that had been killed by the police. And Harry said there was not a policeman in sight. You did not see any policeman when all of these people gathered for the funeral and all the traffic control and so forth was handled by members of the uh, Longshore Union. He saw the power of the working class in that moment. He saw the power of solidarity and unity and justice. And I think that that deeply influenced him. And when he returned to LA with Will, they broke up sometime after that strike. I don't know the details of what happened there, but I do know that he became, Harry, became very active in the anti-fascist movement and the Popular Front, and he was raising money to help Jews get out of um, Hitler Germany and out of Europe. And as that unfolded, you see, he became more and more involved with people who were in the Communist Party and saw its relevance uh, that he hadn't seen before in the earlier time and, and really wanted to join. Right, so he at some point uh, decided to seek a membership in the party. He was eventually accepted into the party in September 1938. He knew that the Communist Party banned uh, gay people. He consulted with a psychiatrist in an effort to do what? <laughs> I think this is a very, to me right now, it's a funny story but probably wasn't so funny to Harry at the time. He went to a psychiatrist, which, and, he, and he explained that psychiatry was still relatively new at that time, but he went to a psychiatrist to ask him how he could 
become not gay, you know, if he could be cured of this. And the psychiatrist recommended to him that he just marry a boyish woman and that that would take care of it. And he thought to himself, well, that's not a problem. He knew such a woman. He liked her a lot. They were on, often on strike pickets together. And her name was Anita Plotke. And so he said he wooed her. She was already in the Communist Party. And they decided that they would get married. And then they went to the Communist Party and he asked to be allowed to become a member. He said it took, I think he said it took three months. Uh, it took a considerable period of time because he, he was totally open about the fact that he had been gay. And here he was going to give it up and he was going to get married uh, to Anita Plotke and she was already in the party. And uh, so he asked to be able to join. And um, they were married in, in, in September 1938. And I think the next day he joined the Communist Party. The fact is that Harry was fundamentally gay. I think it was a very, very difficult marriage, certainly for Anita. He had many affairs with men uh, while they were married. And uh, she wanted at some point to uh, have children. And so what they did was they adopted two girls and they lived together and they were a family for about 13 years. And they lived in the Echo Park section of Los Angeles, which was a sort of what was thought of as a red enclave. There were a lot of communist families that lived there. And uh, I've talked to some people who knew them when they were in the party and when they were married. Uh, they were children at the time, but they had very wonderful memories. And uh, because Harry was a, a good, especially good with children, the kids, the kids really loved him. He's very charismatic and very loving. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Bettina Aptaker joins me. She is a distinguished professor emerita in the Feminist Studies Department at UC Santa Cruz. Her books include Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel, and The Morning Breaks, The Trial of Angela Davis. Her new book is Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s. It's published by Routledge. So what were the, the key ways in which Harry Hay was active within the Communist Party? What sorts of things? I know he was into music, and he taught classes in music and politics. What was uh, his primary contribution to what the party was trying to accomplish? For a very brief period of time after they were married, Harry and Anita moved to New York. And he worked as a union organizer at, I think it was Macy's department store. I'm not sure which department store it was. But he was uh, found out, you know, as a union person and was fired. And, but he, he, did, he always was committed to union organizing. That's the only reason I'm telling that story. And when they moved back to Los Angeles, both of them were very active in various ways to support union struggles that were taking place. Um, he and Anita were, as I said, involved in various strikes, but the main thing he did was he taught a class for the California Labor School, which was a Communist Party school, and he taught a class on the history of music as a way of understanding the class struggle. It was a very elaborate class, and I found his lecture notes for it, all the outlines. He played music for the students. It was one of the most popular classes at the California Labor School in Southern California. And, and people really loved it and learned from it. And he was, he was an erudite Marxist scholar. That's something that I think needs to be emphasized. He was very learned. And um, he had gone to Stanford for a brief period of time, not to study Marxism, but uh, as, a, as an undergraduate. He got very sick when he was there and left and never actually completed uh, a college degree and that really had nothing to do with how brilliant he was as a scholar, researcher, and, and very original. He was very original in his thinking. So he taught this class, and by using the music, he tried to show people class consciousness at various times through the music, musical traditions in Europe, mostly Western Europe. The other thing uh, he did when he was in the Communist Party 
I, I already mentioned raising money uh, for refugees uh, and things like that. He also was the education secretary of his party club. In that regard, again, I found extensive notes that he took, for example, doing educationals on the party's approach to the oppression of black people, the special, they called the special oppression of black people and the ideas of self-determination. And I will just say that what led to the founding of the Mattachine Society was him and another gay man with whom he was deeply in love, uh, and he was still married at this time, where they circulated the Stockholm Peace Pledge. And this was an effort to prevent a third world war and was sort of attacked by the government and anybody who was circulating it or signed it was considered to be a communist or communist sympathizer, although tens of thousands of people in this country signed the Stockholm Peace Pledge. So that he, those are the kinds of, in other words, whatever the party campaigns were at the time he participated in, but he also spent a great deal of his time as a Marxist educator. Were the, the founders of the Mattachine Society, again, this is in 1951, the Mattachine Society being the first gay rights organization in the United States, uh, were the other founders of the Mattachine Society in the Communist Party, were they the communists? The answer is yes, <laughs> but this is how they how they did it. So he was he had fallen in love with a Viennese, a, an Austrian refugee, Jewish refugee, whose name was Rudi Gernreich, and uh, they had become lovers, and and Rudi was his first recruit to the Mattachine Society, and I don't think he was yet in the Communist Party, but he was willing to circulate the Stockholm Peace Pledge with Harry. And they went to Venice Beach to circulate the petition. But their ulterior motive was they thought while they were doing that, they went to that part of the beach that they knew was occupied by gay men, you know, sort of, it was frequented by gay men and they went there. And they, they got a lot of men to sign the petition. And then while they were doing that, they, they talked to them about the idea of a Mattachine Society. That's how they actually recruited their first members. Whether or not those people were already in the Communist Party or joined the Communist Party as a consequence of their relationship with Harry and Rudy, I don't know. I don't know which came first. But I do know that the original Mattachine Society, the original founders, uh, were, were all in the Communist Party. And they did the best they could in terms of beginning to think about ways of fighting for what we would call gay liberation now, but they were interested in, um, in fighting for civil rights. The key thing about Mattachine and about Harry at this point was that he said and wrote that gay people constituted an oppressed, this was his wording, an oppressed cultural minority. And that was very important because it made it, you can see the Marxist influence there since we had black people as a nationally oppressed minority. And he said gay people were a culturally oppressed minority, but it took it out of a path, as though it was a pathology of certain individuals that they were gay and turned it into an understanding of more political understanding of why gay and lesbian people were persecuted, that it wasn't the fault of theirs, but that it had to do with uh, patriarchy, with patriarchal society and capitalism. And, and so that was a very important contribution right there when they first founded the Mattachine. That's the voice of Bettina Aptaker. We're talking about her new book, Communists in Closets, Querying the History, 1930s to 1990s. You can find a link to it on againstthegrain.org, where you'll also find a link to Bettina's faculty page at UC Santa Cruz. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So Harry Hayes' designation of, of gay men and lesbians as a culturally oppressed minority, uh, you were saying how that's roughly analogous to, to, it was the Communist Party's analysis that African Americans constituted a nationally oppressed minority. 
Uh, you're right, it also harkens back to the Black Nation thesis put forward by the Communist Party. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, and yes, it does harken back. And as I mentioned, Harry was the education secretary of his party club before the founding of Mattachine. And he taught a lot of this material and led discussions in his party club about racism and about black oppression and the special oppression of black people. In the late 20s and early 30s, a black communist whose name was Harry Haywood developed the idea of the formation of a black nation. This was because in Southern states like Mississippi and Alabama, black people were actually a majority of the population. As a way of combating the intense racial oppression, the violence and uh, the lynching, the disfranchisement, sharecropping and other outrages, he suggested that the party formulate the idea that those states where black people were an absolute majority could become a black nation within the United States, that they had a common heritage, common history, common language, common land base, uh, and common work. And these were formulations that had to do with the communist idea of what constituted a nation and the so-called national question. The party adopted this, and so did the Comintern, which was the international organization of the communist movement. It was something I think that could never have been actually realized, but the key formulation in it that was very important both to black uh, liberation and also to Harry's understanding was self-determination, that black people should have the right to self-determination, which is of course the hallmark of national liberation struggles everywhere in the world. But this was, this was formulated in the late 20s and early 30s, which is very, very early. And, and that became a very important idea. And, and so when Harry founded um, the Mattachine Society, and he talked about a culturally, culturally oppressed minority, you, see the, you can see the parallel, um, he also then thought about gay people having a separate consciousness from straight people, from heterosexual population, because of their experiences as being gay. And um, gay people, he included lesbians in his idea, but as, I, as I've said, lesbians were, there were only a couple of lesbians involved in the actual founding of the Mattachine Society. But he had this idea then that uh, gay people might be able to develop a revolutionary consciousness that would be of great consequence to developing a really liberatory movement. So much more in your book, Communists in Closets, Queering the History 1930s to 1990s about Harry Hay. I want to move on to another section of your book, sort of a profile of Lorraine Hansberry, probably best known for being the playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. It was the first play by an African-American woman to be produced on Broadway. But as you bring out in this book, she was also a, a communist. She was steeped in Marxism. And there's so much in this chapter about this extremely interesting woman and intellect and journalist and feminist and activist. Uh, but maybe we could we could start with what eventually moved her to join the Communist Party. What happened in her early years such that she developed a, a radical consciousness? I think Lorraine Hansberry was an extraordinary figure. She joined the Communist Party in 1948. And she was in college at the time. Uh, and she was very active in the campaign to elect Henry Wallace to the presidency. He was running against Harry Truman. And of course he lost, and, but that was where a lot of the left and communist people put their uh, efforts was in the 1948 election. In her earlier years, 
her family had moved to what had been an all-white neighborhood, bought a home there. Her father was in real estate. He had turned many apartments in Chicago. They were in Chicago. Uh, turned many apartments into housing for the vast migration of black people coming up from the South. And so he had a stable income. The family, for a, for a black family in Chicago during the Depression, she's born in 1930, so that's sort of in the middle of the Depression, they had a stable income. And her mother was a school teacher who kept her job. They bought a, ho they bought a home, <clears throat> and the white neighbors uh, went pretty much crazy to have a black family in their neighborhood as a consequence of which she was exposed to some mob violence that was uh, very disconcerting and very upsetting, and she was still quite young. This taught her a great deal about racism. Her father filed a lawsuit to be able to stay in the house they had bought. <clears throat> he was countering a lawsuit from the a homeowners association in the neighborhood that claimed that there was a covenant that prevented uh, families from selling their homes to black people. These kinds of covenants existed all over the country and they often excluded not only black people but other people of color and also Jews. So her father filed a countersuit to that. It made its way all the way to the Supreme Court the court ruled in favor of her father, but not on the grounds that the covenant was unconstitutional or that, that its idea was unconstitutional, but on the grounds that the majority of people, the vast majority of people in this housing association had never signed it. And so they were uh, supposed to be able then to buy their home. I think another factor for Lorraine that was very significant, so, you know, she's, She's like a, a, a child when this happens. Uh, they threw a brick through the window of this new home to try to discourage them from staying there, and it missed her head by inches. She was just maybe seven, eight years old. So she's already learning a great deal about the structure of racism. She had an uncle who was in the Communist Party who was part of the, uh, headed the National Negro Commission for a period of time. She had another uncle, Leo, who was an authority on African liberation, African history, and they were all friends with Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, who at this time was not in the Communist Party, but was certainly very much within that purview of thinking. I think all of these things influenced her a great deal. And then one other thing was uh, after her first year in college, she went to Mexico. Um, her father was so discouraged by the Supreme Court decision that he decided to move the whole family to Mexico. That's, this is an important thing that happened in terms of trying to deal with racism. And as a result, um, he went down to Mexico to find them a home. And he died uh, very suddenly of, um, I believe it was a cerebral hemorrhage. So it was very shocking to the family. She was very connected to her father. And when she was uh, finished her first year in college, he went to Mexico, which was a sort of, in some parts, a pilgrimage for him, but also because she was very interested in art. Now, one of the artists she studied with in Mexico was a communist. So she was again exposed to uh, communist ideas and, and um, through her family, but also through this art connection. And um, so she joined the Communist Party. So she entered University of Wisconsin-Madison, Lorraine Hansberry did, in 1948. Actually, a, a white woman refused to room with her, and, and that was an issue. And then, basically, they, they met her and um, decided, okay, but obviously that, that must have had an impact on, on her. Her Hansberry had a relationship with a white woman uh, while in college, and then, and then she left left to do what that was sort of important for her political development? So she left college. This was the start of her sophomore year. And she was very dissatisfied with the classes. 
and she did have these experiences with white girls, you know, in terms of rooming and and she went to the University of Chicago very briefly, but then ultimately, I mean, the main point is that she went to New York and she moved into a place in the village, in Greenwich Village, which I think she found more compatible in terms of race, but also uh, more compatible in terms of her sexuality, which I don't think was as yet really defined for her. Uh, she had a very intense emotional connection with a woman while she was in college, which she continued for some years afterwards. I don't know if that was also sexual. I'm not sure that it was at all, but it was a very intense relationship. And then uh, when she was in Greenwich Village, she took some classes at the uh, new school for social science. Again, was dissatisfied, restless, you know, restless, trying to find herself. And had a, you know, she took various jobs. And then this dream job opened up for her, which is that Paul Robeson had begun a journal in Harlem that was called Freedom. And it was edited by a black communist whose name was Louis Burnham. And she left uh, the village to work in Harlem. And first she started out as a sort of assistant at the journal at Freedom. And very quickly they saw her tremendous potential, her tremendous brilliance. She had already published a poem in their first issue, which was November 1950. November 1950 was the first issue. She was 20 years old. And it's, it's a very powerful poem. And very shortly after that, she became assistant editor. And she worked with Louis Burnham every day. And she's already in the Communist Party. She had already written a poem for New Masses. I don't mean New Masses. I meant Masses in Mainstream. By that time, New Masses had folded. So she wrote a poem that was published in Masses in Mainstream. And um, the thing I think that's most important here to understand is that she was mentored by an extraordinary cadre of black communist intellectuals that were gathered around Robeson, Burnham, Claudia Jones, Louise Thompson Patterson, William L. Patterson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Shirley Graham Du Bois, Alpheus Hunton, Dorothy Hunton. All of these people mentored her and they were all based around this publication called Freedom. And she became deeply involved and, and, and really uh, learned so much about black oppression, it, theoretically, as well as politically. And she became involved in an initiative called Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was an organization founded primarily by Louise Patterson and another black communist, Bea Richards, who was an actor. It was an actress and a poet. And um, she became very involved in that. They had a, a tremendous action that they tried to undertake in Washington, DC. This is all like in 1951, in a time of terrible repression and the McCarthy period and so on. And here they are uh, writing and publishing this, this news journal once a month, it was once a month. And she wrote for it. Um, she wrote some extraordinary pieces for it as a journalist, as well as her writing as, um, as a poet. Yeah, a fascinating story. I mean, we can't get into in detail a lot of what you reveal about Lorraine Hansberry in your book, Communists in Closets. She married a guy named Robert Nemiroff in 1953, fellow Communist Party member, um, she, she certainly had affairs with women, and, and Bob knew it. They became best friends after they separated. Um, under what circumstances did Lorraine Hansberry leave the Communist Party? Lorraine Hansberry left the Communist Party sometime in about 1957 or 58. And it was after the Khrushchev revelations. She didn't make any kind of a big deal about it. There's no, there's no big fanfare. There's nothing like a letter of resignation or anything like that. Uh, and I do want to say that it didn't change her politics. She was an African liberationist. She was a feminist. She was a revolutionary. And I found material uh, like a, a long poem that she wrote that's really a, a 
communist revolutionary feminist manifesto is what it is. And I hadn't seen it published before anywhere, and I published some of it in the book. You can't miss it. You can't miss who she was. So whether or not she was formally in the Communist Party, she, she remained very much a part of, of that milieu. And she was certainly connected to all of the black communists I've already mentioned. And you devote some of this section in your book to Lorraine Hansberry, to what she wrote in her fiction about the discipline it required to be closeted. Can you talk about how, how uh, Lorraine's, Lorraine Hansberry, well, how she felt about that or what her experience around it was and, and a little bit about what she, she wrote around that? So I want to say that Lorraine Hansberry was, as you said, married to Bob Nemiroff. He was Jewish. He was a communist. Uh, they were married in 53 at her parents' home. It was pretty unusual to have an interracial couple. That's another thing to just bear in mind here. And very early on in their marriage, she told him in a letter that her primary love was for women. She and Nemiroff remained very, very close, and as you said, best friends. They, they never, they, they just, they were terrifically connected to each other, and I think he really loved her tr tremendously. And um, he abided by what she wanted and what she needed. And I think also he saw the genius that she was and wanted to do everything he could to promote that, to help her. Um, so I just wanted to, to say that, because I think he's pretty amazing. Uh, when she first did a reading of A Raisin in the Sun at their home, uh, she was still with, uh, living with Nemiroff, and her lover was, her female lover was there, and as well as this music producer who was interested in producing it on Broadway. And um, they were all there together, and they had had dinner together, and then she read, she read the play to them. And I, I just think... He, he had to be a pretty big man to be able to deal with all of that. And not only that, he protected her. So after Raisin in the Sun was such a sensation on Broadway, she got a great deal of money from it and also then uh, was going to be made into a movie. And as a consequence, she received some huge sum of money from the uh, film producers in Hollywood. And so she was able to move out of the house with Nemiroff and she bought a place on Waverly. Uh, it's 112 Waverly Place. And she lived upstairs in the upstairs apartment. And her lover lived on the first floor. <laughs> and that was Dorothy Seckules. Uh, so it, it's just these things were happening. And then the FBI came and talked to Nemiroff and said, well, how come Lorraine Hansberry is living at 112 Waverly Place? And he just said, he lied to them. He just said, oh, that's where she writes, as though she they were still living together. So she see, she had the cover as though she was still married. Legally, I think they still were until about 1964 uh, or 63, but, but they weren't together anymore, but he just covered for her. Now, at the same time, by 57, she knew that Daughters of Belitis was being founded because she was already connected to, to lesbians in the village. And Daughters of Belitis uh, was the first lesbian civil rights organization formed in the United States, and it was headquartered in San Francisco. And it's a pretty famous organization, pretty famous group. And it was publishing, it started publishing a uh, news magazine called The Ladder. And I think that's what you're referring to in your question, uh, because she wrote a short story, she wrote several short stories for The Ladder, and she also wrote a short story for uh, the gay publication that came out of the Mattachine Society that was called One. I think the particular short story you're referring to is about a woman who is a lesbian, deeply closeted, and is struggling with... So Hansberry uses a kind of analogy of um, this woman being very disciplined about her budget. I think, I think, in fact, the story was called The Budget. And it's very powerful because it's about this woman being very disciplined about her money and what she would spend on it and how much she would spend and so forth, and then encountering a lesbian on the street and seeing her and recognizing that she was a lesbian 
but trying to stay closeted herself. And I won't go through the whole story, but it's, if you were if you are a closeted lesbian, you would totally recognize the the incredible psychological insight of the story and the struggle that this woman was going through. And I think in that sense, it was very autobiographical. Uh, and she published it in the latter, but under a pseudonym. If I could say just one more thing about Lorraine Hansberry, uh, all of the people that mentored uh, Hansberry uh, were very important in my own childhood because of the work my father did in African-American history. And as a consequence of that, writing this chapter was very powerful for me. And I really felt like I understood because I could visualize, I could hear the voices of, I, I, I knew Robeson, I knew Du Bois, I knew these people, the, the Pattersons, for example. And so I felt like I could really, and the Burnhams, I could, I could really understand what she had experienced in that mentorship. And then because I'm a lesbian, I felt I could also really understand somehow inside what she was going through in her struggle to define herself, to define her sexuality. And it's a terrible tragedy that she got pancreatic cancer and she died so young when she was about 34 years old. Bettina Aptaker's new book is Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s. She is Distinguished Professor Emerita at UC Santa Cruz. Bettina, thanks very much for writing this book and for joining us today. You're so welcome. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 